When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, Cracked fans, to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. We have a fantastic interview on today's episode for all of you listeners to enjoy, as I am joined by one of the biggest risers of the past year on the ATP Tour, a man who is now a three-time ATP Challenger champion. He reached his first ATP quarterfinal last week in Delray Beach as well. Of course, I'm alluding to the current world number 144, Patrick Kipson, who joins us on the podcast today to break down his rise over the past year, what it meant to him to reach his first tour-level quarterfinal, what it was like to recover from the debilitating injuries that plagued him early in these 2020s, and what he hopes to accomplish moving forward, where he hopes his game continues to grow moving forward as well. It is just an in-depth conversation, dare I say the sort of conversation we're getting back to our roots with here on today's show. It's the sort of interviews I hope to do more frequently throughout the course of 2024. And here in the intro, I would be remiss if I did not thank Patrick Kipson for his candidness, for the depth in his answers. I'm hoping to have him more on the show throughout the course of this season as well. This was one of my favorite interviews we've done in quite some time. And again, I appreciate his candidness. I appreciate him taking the time to chat with us. I am certain all of you listeners will appreciate it as well. So without further ado, let's get to it. Again, a fantastic interview for all of you listeners to enjoy. Here is my conversation with the current world number 144, Patrick Gibson. Joining us on the podcast for the first time today is a man who just continues to rack up the accolades. Let's start with his most recent accomplishment. He reached his first ATP Tour quarterfinal in Delray Beach. Of course, he is now a three-time ATP Challenger champion. But of course, I can remember all the way back to his 2017 Boys 18's Kalamazoo title as well. Welcome on to our show, the world number 144. It's Patrick Kipson joining us today, Patrick. Thank you for taking the time to join the show. Uh, how are you doing, my friend? Yeah, thanks for having me. Doing good. Um, obviously, had a good uh, last couple of weeks. You know, I'm happy with uh, with how I performed and and some of the results there. And uh, yeah, doing good. Back at home, doing a little training and and getting ready to go back out again. I imagine it's got to be nice to just get a break given how much traveling you have done through the first couple of months of the season. But I want to talk about a quote you gave to the ATP Tour website to start today's show. You talked about reaching uh, or earning your first victory at the tour level in Delray Beach. And you said, I'm super happy. I'm working really hard. And I definitely don't feel any different waking up today than I do on any other day after a win. Now, that's a great answer for the press. Let's be clear. But I am curious now that you've had a little bit more 
more time to absorb that Delray run. What did it mean to you to have that sort of tour level success, you know, given all the injuries, everything you've been through? Yeah, obviously, um, you know, felt amazing. Um, I think looking back, you know, it's definitely once you're a week or so removed, it's, it's definitely special to look back and, and see how you got that first win, whether it be your first title at a certain level or your first match win at a certain level. Um, so obviously, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm super happy with, with getting my first tour level win and, um, you know, looking back a week removed now, it's probably a little feels a little bit better than it did the day after. Um, just cause when you're in that tournament mode and you're competing, you know, it's whether it's a tour tour level, it's a future, it's just a win is a win and it feels good. There's things that you did well cause you won and there's things that, you know, you need to improve on. So that's kind of how I look at it during competition, but you know, definitely super, super happy to get, you know, a couple tour wins. It's, uh, that's, that's why you start playing tennis and that's where you want to continue to, to win matches, you know, to be successful as a, as a professional. No, it's well-deserved and it's a mature mindset to head that has probably led to the success you have had. I'm curious about the level difference because obviously, what, two weeks prior, you were playing indoor tennis in Cleveland, a run obviously to your third challenger title. I had the chance to be there in person and see your level. I mean, this may be a simple question, but I'll ask it anyways. Were you playing better in Delray Beach to get the results you got or was the level fairly similar for you between the two events? I actually think, I mean, I think I actually said something to you maybe, but I wasn't super happy with my level in Cleveland, to be honest. I think I did a lot of things like not tennis related very well. Like I competed very well and I, I served very well, um, especially when I needed it, but I actually didn't feel like super, super confident. I didn't feel like I was hitting the ball like as clean as I would have liked to in Cleveland. And um, I just did a lot of other things really well. I think that's what got me the win there, which obviously you can take a lot away from because I felt like I didn't play my best, but I still won a tournament with beating a bunch of high-level players. So I took a lot of confidence from that. Um, and I think my level in Delray was was a little bit better. I felt a little bit more dialed in off the ground and I, I continue to serve pretty well. And, and that obviously helped me, but, um, in terms of like the difference of level in between the quality of players I was playing in Cleveland and then in Delray, I mean, yeah, you could argue that it's slightly higher, but the de- it's just, I think it comes down to the details and on the big points, what are you doing? What's the other guy doing? Um, cause everyone hits the ball like the same, you know? No, absolutely. The guy I play the first round in Cleveland hits the ball as well as the guy I play in the quarters of Delray. It's just the guy I play in the quarters of Delray usually is going to play better on the bigger <laughs> points, I think, is the difference. You know? Um, so I don't think the level's too different. You know, they make you work for sure. They make you work at, you know, in the challenger level as well. There's no more, there's really not any more free points or no one's really giving you anything anymore. So, you're having to earn all of it regardless of the level. Um, so, yeah, not not too different. Um, 
Well, but, yeah. the reason I ask is because looking at your history, and again, we're kind of going in reverse order here, but I don't know if you're aware of this stat. Going into last season, you had six victories at the challenger level in your career, had never reached a quarterfinal in challengers. Last year, you yeah. won 32 matches at the challenger level, and now obviously you have three titles to your name at that level. It, was it as simple as getting healthy? Like, I'm curious what clicks that allows someone like you to have that sort of significant jump. Because it's one thing to go from 6 to 12 and a couple of quarterfinals. Yeah. But, you know, three challenger titles in the last 52 weeks. What do you attribute that to? I think I think a lot of it's getting healthy for sure. I mean, like, if I look back on, like, my years since I left college, I would just feel like I haven't really been able to play consistently the tournaments that I wanted to play until until I came back from my elbow surgery in um summer area of 22 mm-hmm. um so since then I feel like I've been able to play a, on a consistent basis and schedule my events the way I want to and you know obviously I needed to build the ranking up a little bit so I could get into challengers because I basically had you know no no ranking because I'm playing three months and then resting seven and then it's just, it was a disaster. So, um, building my ranking to be able to get into challengers and then slowly starting to feel comfortable at that level. Um, then obviously the work I've been doing, my coach, my physio, my sports psychologist, just, I think kind of all the work eventually you start to see some kind of, some kind of payout from it. Um, but definitely being comfortable, you know, at that level, start, it, it takes a little while to get feeling like you belong there and that you can beat those guys. You have a couple wins, starts to kind of, you know, snowball for you. So, um, you know, that's kind of the next, I feel like the next phase for me in my career is starting to feel that way at the tour level as much as I can and, and start to build, um, you know, build some more confidence there. Yeah. And I want to talk about your tennis in a little bit. Let's talk about those injuries here because it has been such a big part of your story. And, you know, reading about it, the idea of getting your elbow shaved, that sounds like it hurts. Like, I don't know how else to say it. Like, that just doesn't sound like a comfortable process, my friend. And so, you know, again, I know you had some tendonitis. It turned into bone spurs, all these different things, stress fractures. When did you go ahead and make the decision, you know what, I just think surgery has to be the option. Talk me through that what that was like. Yeah. So I've been struggling. I had been struggling with the elbow really since the day I turned pro in the beginning of 2019, I had ongoing um, stress fractures and stress reactions. So basically that's, you know, small cracks. I'm not a doc, but (laughs) small cracks in the bone that were just causing me a, a lot of pain, especially on the serve and on the forehand. And, I would get these symptoms of like this dead arm and just not being able to swing and on top of the pain I was getting when I was playing. So um, that happens like that happened three or four times where basically the the protocol was to rest for, you know, 12, 16 weeks and then slowly build up again. So like I said, three, three rounds of that you know, where I would feel like, oh, it's feeling better. Then I'd start to build up to play competition and it just go back to what it was. Um, and we tried all kinds of different like rehab strategies, you know, doing different things 
tinkering with really everything, you know, it's from all the way from my strings to uh, my racket swing weight, the flexibility of the racket, pretty much every stone that we know that we knew to turn over at the time we did. Um, and then at the end of 21, um, it got super bad again. And we went in and there was bone chips floating around in there that were hitting my humerus when I was locking my arm out. That sounds comfortable. And so, yeah. So at least we knew where the pain was coming from. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, they went in and they took the, the bone spurs out and they had to kind of shave down some of the parts of the elbow that the spurs came off of, from my understanding. And that took a lot longer than they thought it would take. And so it just was a long process of rehab getting back from that surgery because I was, I didn't hit a ball for like five months or something. Which I imagine was probably the longest time you had gone since you first started playing the sport. And I I know reading about it, and not to compare our two tennises, uh, the, the way we play tennis, because let's be clear, your tennis is a different sport than the tennis I play. Um, but I like to think on the binary scale, I'm a one, not a zero. And so I know nowadays, if I try to go play, that the next three days are just devastating. And again, I'm not trying to push myself athletically the way you guys do and reading about the ab strains that would come when you try to hit a serve. Yeah. That just was near and dear to my heart. I'm like, yeah, dude, I yeah. can't bend over like after a day of serves. Like it's just over for me. I don't have bone spurs, but my shoulder has, you know, it's to the point where I just wouldn't want anyone to see how I have to serve to get through the pain. And so to try and compete at at this sort of level, what comes back later, I suppose? Is it the tennis itself? Because you talk about not swinging for five months. Was that the harder piece to pick up? Or is it the physical part of it, getting the movement back, getting the strength back? What took longer in your process? I think for me, it was it was the movement and the, just like remembering like kind of like how to like, like the the tactical side of the game more. The like plus the, one shot, not to interrupt you, but I feel like that first ball off the return, you're just like, what the f*** do I do? You're just like, yeah, it's you, on me. You don't know where to play it. And <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it comes on you fast. And yeah. I think that part took the longest to get back. Like the hitting actually, it's tough to say because like when I first came back, I was hitting, you know, 60 green dot balls a day. <laughs> sure. So that takes like three minutes, you know. <laughs> yeah. So you're very slowly building up the progression okay. to where it's like, you're, sl- you're shaking off the rust kind of like very slowly day by day by day. And you're so like, you have so little expectations of how it's going to feel that it actually ends up feeling like, okay, at the end of it, by the time you start hitting like regular <laughs> balls, um, not good, but like, you know, it yeah. feels okay. I've hit so many balls in my life. It, <laughs> it, it came back pretty, pretty quick from like a feeling standpoint. It was just really the point play scenarios and the serving was what took, you know, the longest amount of time. And, Obviously, with the with the injury I had, that was what we had to be super careful of because that was the the thing that was causing the the injury and was causing the most pain. So, um, the serve progression was just super super slow. Yeah, I can only imagine. And look, you get injured twenty nineteen. You're what I want to say twenty twenty one at the time that that happens. And I think I was like nineteen. Yeah, yeah. I just I, left school. Yeah. And so, for context. 
I grew another inch when I was 19, and I just remember falling a lot my sophomore year when it was icy at Michigan, and just, it was not, again, I was a gangly fella, still am, Um, but I imagine you were probably still growing a little bit during that time span, and to come back off of that injury, I bet you were a little taller, probably a little heavier than before that injury had happened, and, you know, the reason I bring this up is getting to see you, this is a weird way to say it. You were taller than I expected in Cleveland. I was like, oh, okay. Like It kind of all starts to make sense now watching you in person. Uh, did you have that experience coming back where, hey, like you know, now my body has kind of changed a little bit? And what, what has that adjustment been like as you've, you know, again, tried to become, dare I say, get into professional shape? Yeah. Yeah, I think I was, I might have been still growing a little bit, but no doubt that my body was, I mean, as an 18 year old becoming a, a man, your body is definitely, you know, changing. I'm getting heavier, stuff's filling out, you know, I'm filling out my body and, you know, whatever's going on in my, my bones from like a hormone standpoint, you know, like all that stuff is, is true. That's all like very relevant, you know, so. I didn't feel like a big difference. Um, I was definitely training quite hard when I was injured in the gym, like doing what I could do, not involving my upper extremity. Um, I actually think I was probably in the best shape of my life when I was like 20 and injured from like a cardiovascular <laughs> standpoint, but um, maybe not tennis shape because I wasn't playing tennis, but just from a strict like, cardio gym you know like different things you can do in the gym Mm -hmm. it's probably the most fit i'll ever be but (laughs) um (laughs) i'd much rather trade being fit to play tennis than than some of the stuff i was doing in the gym but it's a tough line because i think some of the you know had to we kind of had to dial back a little bit the more that it happened and just give my body the chance to recover because like you said like there's things going on in your body that maybe you're not feeling or you're not seeing but you know, your body's trying to heal and to push it to the, to the end every single day, six days out of the week, maybe wasn't helping my healing process. So it's one thing I've been kind of mindful of that I kind of learned. And now whenever I'm kind of going through something or there's a little bit of aches and pains, it's more emphasis on just recovering and allowing my body to, to heal and not, not pushing it to the, to the break every day. There's times for that for sure. But just kind of, you get smarter as you get older and you start to learn your body and figure out what works for it a little bit better. Yeah, no, I feel like that's such a critical component and I appreciate you, you know, your candid responses and offering that insight. That brings us back to your game now and the reason I wanted to offer that sort of context is watching you play in Cleveland, I know, you know, maybe you weren't feeling at your best. The thing that stood out to me was how complete your game seems to have become. Like looking at that Cleveland run, if you want to say you don't think you did anything maybe outside of the serve like exceptionally well, I actually think that's pretty fair. But I also don't yeah. think you did anything poorly all week. I felt like everything was solid where it needed to be. And I'm curious if that has been a focus of your development is becoming a complete player because certainly look that way in Cleveland. Yeah, I'd agree with that for sure. I think that, I think you uh, you phrased that pretty well. Actually, I would I would totally agree with that. Um, in terms of my game, yeah, I think obviously I feel like the game has become more aggressive in the recent years. Like everyone's playing, you know, really aggressive style tennis. Everyone's serving. 
quite big. Everyone's playing quite big off the first, you know, shot or two in the rallies. And that's great. And I, you know, I'm trying to, to continue to develop that area of my game, but also being able to neutralize, to defend and to try and get forward when I can and use my, my hand skills up at the net. Um, definitely try and have the skills to have an all court game. Um, I think I'm not good enough to have one dimension of, of the game and just play that. You know what I mean? Like I need to have other skills and be able to do a lot of other things. Whereas maybe some other guys can just focus more solely on one aspect of the game. I try and, and round it out. That's one thing um, that I've been working on a lot with, with my coach over the last couple of years is continuing to develop, you know, all the skills and, and uh, improve my movements that I can defend when I need to. And, and that translates into offense too. Yeah. No, I mean, certainly to see the defense against Emilio, James, and Ethan back-to-back-to-back, all guys with serious weapons with the serves, the forehands, and the aggressiveness they try to play with. But, you know, on the other side of that coin, I am curious because the more I follow the game, the more I realize you just kind of have to have weapons to make life easy for yourself. And, you know, again— you haven't played, that. I think it's seven matches so far at the challenger level this year. You're holding 90% of the time. That's for those who want context for that statistic. The over 90% club is, it's like Hercots, Kyrgios when he's healthy, Isner during his career, and now Patrick Kipson. Welcome to the 90% club. It's a good place to be hanging out with uh, through two months. You're hitting your spots well on serve, but talk to me about what's going to make life easy for you moving forward. How are you trying to do that for yourself? Yeah, I mean, the serves, the the first part of that, for sure. I think um, actually being able to, you know, feel confident with my body and my arm. And I feel like my MPH on the serve is, has gone up, you know, maybe five, seven MPH in the last six months. I think I'm serving on average probably mid-120s, upper-120s, low-130s, so... I'm happy with that speed and obviously I've worked a lot on hitting the right spots. Um, but the ball is going to come back for sure. You know, the better the player you play returns, you're going to come back. And so, like you said, you have to have in men's tennis right now, you have to have a weapon. Not only do you have to be super solid, but you have to have some weapons that they can separate you, you know, in the match. Um, so for me, you know, I think I serve my forehand continuing to develop my, my back end and um, yeah, those are the, you know, the areas that I think I can keep, keep improving on so that I have those, those weapons and the matches that I need. Yeah. It's a weird sample size to pull from. I was at NCAAs in 2018 when you played Oliver Crawford. I don't remember you moving forward nearly as much. I was also there, you know, again, the next day when you played uh, what I think Borna uh, would have been for Wake Forest. But yeah, um, yeah by the way, we haven't talked enough about how Arthur Rinderkanesh ended Johannes Inglitsen's career. We can get back to that maybe in a little bit later because I don't think he ever recovered singles-wise. But, yeah, that was um, a tough one for yeah, Johannes. Yeah, yeah, it was a tough one. Great guy, by the way. Um, but watching you in Cleveland, and I wonder if part of it's just you're, you're playing indoor tennis. I felt like you were much more comfortable volleying than I had seen earlier in your career. And that was a big component as well because you have good pace, as we kind of stated. Maybe it's not... Elkaraz pace, but it's good pace. It's good depth. You have opportunities to close. Are you more comfortable doing that now than you used to be? 
I'm definitely more comfortable than I used to be for sure. And I think there's a lot of margin to keep, uh, keep improving that aspect of my game. Um, cause I see that I, you know, I'm pretty successful when I, when I play that style, whether it's indoor or outdoor, um, you know, obviously I haven't played a ton on clay in the last six months, but I still want to continue to play aggressive on the clay. Obviously things are going to be a little different and you have to reset the rally at times, but yeah, definitely feeling more comfortable coming forward. And that's an area that, you know, still put a ton of emphasis on trying to improve on because, um, that's big. You see really, you know, if you watch top tennis these days, you know, everyone comes, comes forward pretty well. There's a few exceptions in there, but, um, for me, for my game, that's definitely going to be an important thing to keep keep improving on. Yeah, my take is always Medvedev's the best bad volleyer we've ever had. Like it's so bad that it's good. It's just it like every time, yeah, yeah, he breaks all the rules you're taught. Like, hey man, you can't have the elbow flying out on the backhand. Don't yeah. hit the U. And it's like, no, for him, he can. He, and it's just yeah, he probably does that on every stroke. To be honest, I don't know <laughs> yeah. if there's one stroke that you would maybe a serve, but. Aside from that, I don't know if there's one stroke that you would you would teach a ten year old and say, "Hey, copy this." You know, That's what I'm saying. I had a coach be like, a freak "No, and- yeah, like technically he's so sound he gets under the ball every time." I was like, "I don't know if that's sound. Like it, it may yeah. work for him, but <laughs> yeah, it's just like again, it's Squidward out there. He's the only one with the yeah. levers to do it." Um, all right, yeah. in the last 52 weeks, as I mentioned, three challenger titles for you: Medellin, Champagne, Cleveland. Let's get basic here. Rank the three. Which meant most to you, and why? Hmm. I'd say, I'd say the win in Champagne was probably my favorite win, just because wild card clinching. Yeah, it was. It was a combination of things. I think I actually played some of the best tennis of the year in Champagne. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, like from a mental standpoint, I think just being able to play your best tennis at the end of the year, when you're kind of feeling the effects of the year and. I think I just did a great job of like being super, super focused and, uh, you know, really dialed in on my game and the combination of what was on the line and how I handled it. Um, and then having like a month break after it to enjoy it, you know, like yeah. I think the combination of those three things probably, probably tops it. The win in Medellin was obviously special because it's the first one. Um, you know, everyone's obviously got something attached to it that you can take from, but I would say, all in all, probably champagne was the most satisfying to date so far. Yeah, they're arguing you're now an indoor hardcore specialist. I mean, which is what <laughs> one would expect given your background and where it's you funny. grew up. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Uh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. No, I mean, obviously, again, what was it like, by the way, that four set with Rusevori just to be in that best of five format? I know. You know, again, you could go all the way back to the 2017 U.S. Open. You had played main draw slam before, but it was a different sort of main draw experience than maybe you had had. I know you had the same at the French Open as you won both of those wild card challenges. What were those experiences like last year? How valuable were they? Super valuable. I think, obviously, like you said, you know, I haven't played a bunch of best of five matches um, for my whole career, I think, between Kalamazoo finals and the three slams. Definitely the first one, you know, more of an experience than probably chances to get a win or anything like that. Um, but the last two, especially the one in Australia, I felt like I was really kind of right there um, and felt really good physically during both matches. And um, I think the one with Rusevori was 
was the closest one I've played so far at a slam. I just felt like I was, I was up four one in the breaker in the fourth and, you know, you play a fifth and it's kind of anyone's game at that point. And I was fairly happy with how I played there. Um, so it's, it's definitely a learning experience playing best of five, you know, like learning how to kind of manage those longer matches. But, um, I think the last one kind of showed me some things and, you know, hopefully I'll have the chance this year to play a couple more best of five matches and continue to, you know, improve on, on that area. What's the most difficult part of managing best of five? Is it as simple as maybe the first time you're like, I needed to eat more than I did. I needed more fluids. Is it that granular, the details you have to be prepared for? I think some of it is. I mean, it's definitely, you're going to want to pay a little bit more. uh, I'm going to want to pay a little bit more attention to nutrition and hydration just because for me, I know what kind of my body takes. Um, So it's super important. You don't want to have your body fail on you. That's a terrible feeling, you know, (laughs) to be out there and it's like three, two in the fourth and you're gassed. It's not a, that's not a, uh, it's not a feeling that you want to come around too often. So definitely it's, it's the simple things. And then I think, cause it's also mental, um, just, you know, knowing that the match is long. So whatever position you're in, you have time to flip it and vice versa, you know? So just kind of, being patient with yourself a little bit better. And, and, uh, you know, if you get off to a poor start, you have time to kind of turn it around. And if you get off to a great start, you need to realize that there's time for the other guy to turn it around and that you need to keep your foot on the gas. So it's a little bit more maybe mental. I would say, I always feel like the matches you play and best of three after you playing the best of five are like, super they just feel super fast you know like that match or two after each slam i've played just feels like super quick and it's like a it's like a sprint you know no so. Tony, for me it's like national indoor quarterfinal day is 9 a.m to 10 p.m and it's just there's no breaks it's all day long and then the next day you have two matches i'm like okay but when's the third match started like this is <laughs> this is nothing yeah. that's that's our equivalent yeah. of best of five in the broadcast booth but no absolutely that makes sense and by the way just i want to throw a take at you because it's when i throw at the listeners all the time i call emil rusevori diet yannick sinner and that like there are some similarities there like how he comes across the forehand the pace he can play with to see your level in that match like I'm not gonna lie I didn't realize you could move like that that was the most impressive thing to me because I feel like his weapons are real his weapons are definitely real and he's a really gifted uh ball striker for sure I mean I'd probably put him in the top I mean definitely in the top 10 in terms of just like quality of the ball that is coming off his racket on every shot like he's he might miss hit a couple on the forehand when he's like really pushed, but like guy's backhand is <laughs> nails, you know, like I'm knifing slices like three feet from the baseline <laughs> and he's like hitting backhands 85 miles an hour back cross court. I'm mean, just roping him. So he's, you know, I grew up playing juniors with him and he's, he's always had that, that skill of just super good ball striking. I think his footwork kind of allows him to, to have that quality of ball because his footwork's so good. He's, He's so balanced on every shot. Um, so I can see the comparison to center. 
Yeah, it's no maybe it, not right now because Sinner's just on a different planet. But yeah. in general, yes. <laughs> yeah, Sinner's a little more fluid, is the thing. And yeah. like again, oh no, you're less fluid than Yannick Sinner, who just won Australian Open. Welcome to the rest <laughs> of the world. Uh, but so yeah, it's, yeah. It's, you're absolutely right. It's the it's the sound coming off of his racket when he makes contact. It's just one of those yeah. sounds that is different than everyone else. But you know, you talk about your junior success. Obviously, you were the generation just under the Tommy Francis Taylor. Riley, Kozlov, all those guys, but your generation had some success as well. And, you know, again, you're what, 24 years old? That's not exactly old by any stretch of the imagination. Let's be clear. What are your thoughts on, you know, this group of Americans right now that we see in the top 100, not just those 97s, but Mickelson and Shelton and JJ, all these guys you have grown up playing with and around, you know, what, what should we know about this group? What are your thoughts on it? I think we've got a great group. Um, obviously, the top guys leading the way, Tommy, Francis, Taylor. Um, you know, I think we're pretty close. I think Taylor's top 10 right now. Yeah. Tommy's, what, 15? Francis is, like, 18. Like, yeah. we could have three guys in the top 10 at the end of the year. If, you know, if those guys have good years, which should be something pretty Ben and pretty Sebi crazy. aren't far behind. They're both top 30. I guess you've got – yeah, you've got Ben in there, who's probably the fourth, and then Sebi yeah. behind him. So, I mean, just to – freaking awesome group of guys right i mean and they're all like relatively young still you know 26 i think is brits tommy francis that's pretty young in the grand scheme of you know in the grand scheme of things so then you've got the younger guys like you said mickelson and um i think emilio nava is going to make a push here pretty soon and, and join there hopefully i can make a push and join in there um jj i think you know 70 right now 60 70 so um bunch of just you know good players and super special to see kind of american tennis i think in a really good spot you know i, I know everyone wants to see a, a grand slam champion um but let's go one step at a time here we've got like 12 guys in the top 100 or something like that so um definitely i think in a good spot yeah, no, I agree. And let's be clear, Matthew McDonald, like me, was born in 95. We're not 30 yet, so we're still young enough. Um, so, uh, you know, again, yeah, that's another top 100 guy. And I guess yep. I'm just curious because you're kind of the bridge between the Fritz generation and the quarter generation. A lot of you guys were top 25 ITF juniors. Like a lot of you guys did have that sort of junior success. I'm sure at the time you probably were envisioning everyone making it at the highest levels, but does it surprise you to see this many in your group having the success that they are out on tour? Uh, not really, not really. I think every guy that's there in, in that position right now is a guy that in juniors you could look at and I could look at and say, he's got a great chance of breaking into the top hundred or, you know, whatever the number is for each, each individual right now. I don't, I'm not surprised at all with, um, with, with any of them. Um, maybe the more surprising one would be Brooksby. I know he hasn't played in a while, but he's also a little bit younger than me. So I didn't see him a ton in juniors, but, um, I mean, if you look at how he's developed and, and how he played when he was playing, you know, a couple of years ago, just so solid and, um, super smart out there. IQ probably just off the charts on the on the tennis court. So, um, yeah, definitely not surprised with 
with anyone of where they're at. It's the sneaky one. When he took the first set off Djokovic, the question was, is he the best player in the world right now? Like some that scholars was, were arguing. That was crazy level. Yeah, for 36 minutes, level. he was the best player in the world. And shout yeah. out to him for that moment. Obviously looking forward to having him back. But no, I mean, it's it's a really fun time for fans. And look, obviously you're right in that group. Uh, my last few questions for you. Let's take that quick stroll down memory lane. Why was college the right choice for you? Why was that year at A&M something you wanted to do? Yeah, I mean, looking back, I think I was just, it's its easy to say looking back, obviously, but I was just super young, you know, and I just don't think um, really from any aspect, I was just quite there, quite ready, you know, physically. I was a kid, you know, I wasn't like, you see some guys at 17, 18, they're like men, right? Like if you look at Arthur Fees or even Alcaraz, like they're already kind of men when they're that age, but I kind of, when I look at pictures of me back then, I was like, I was just such a kid. Like, there's no way I was going to compete with the guys I'm competing with now at that age. It's just not a chance. Um, so I think, you know, going to school and just getting older, getting a little stronger. I wasn't there for a ton of time, but getting a little bit of experience playing in some really cool atmospheres and and learning how to compete better. Um and then I wanted to go somewhere where I felt like my game would continue to improve in college. And for me, that was, that was just, you know, Steve Denton, big Stevie D. Um, <laughs> so that was, that was the reason why. Man, myth and legend, Steve Denton. Just again, the legend. yeah, too many stories uh, to go into there. <laughs> Here's my question. Looking back at it, how does a team of Kipson, Rinder Kinesh, top 100 player, Vashro, Habib, Aguilar, a, a relatively healthy AJ. Like, how did that team lose in the semis? That's what I look well, back you're, and I'm you're missing. How. You're missing our best player that year, actually, Jordi Arcanada. Of course, at the number three spot. I was going to get back I to think it. Jordi lost like, I don't know, three, three or four matches that year. Crazy team. I, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, we had a really good team. I think, I think if you ask any team that year you know the top two teams top three teams we were definitely in the in the mix for sure um unfortunately we ran into a pretty good wake team at wake in the semis and i remember i did not play a very good match against borna and uh we lost a dubs point and me and arthur both lost in under an hour so we were down three zero in like 45 minutes well, 2018 and, Petros was the best player in the, well, a top 10 player in the world. Yeah, he was he was filthy. Yeah. <laughs> he was filthy. He beat Arthur like two and one. I lost like Crazy. two and one. Yeah. And then we ended up getting it back to three all. And I remember it came down to our six, to the number six spot. And I think it was a bagel in the third for Wake. I think uh, maybe the home, the home home court advantage. You know, yeah. helped them out a little bit there, but we were super close for sure. You know, would have had a rematch with the Buckeyes in the final, which would have been fun. Yeah, no, I mean, again, it was a really good group. And yeah, you look at that 2018 year, like yourself, Nuno Borges now a top 100 guy. Mm-hmm. Borna is now a top 100 guy. Arthur has top 100 guy. The depth that, you know, Torp was top 200. Oliver continuing yep. to rise. Could you feel that at the time? Like, did, were you impressed by the level of college tennis? Super, super. I mean, there was there was no match that was was easy. 
Yeah, um, Blumberg I mean, was, was probably the best player one. that season, and you he didn't Blumberg, even win NCAAs. Like, yeah, you had Blumberg, and then I remember we played UCLA. Like I played in Barton Red Lakey, who was yeah, sure. a hell of a player. Yeah, um, even going to schools like Old Miss, playing guys like Gus Hansen that were like. Sure. He was like 550 when he was in school, yeah. you know, and he was like an experienced college player and, you know, good player. I remember, um, you know, playing Tennessee at Timo's daughter, who's like probably <laughs> sure. in the 250s now. Uh-huh. Um, even Alabama, I remember I couldn't beat this guy, Mazen Osama. He had yeah, Egyptian sure. guy with two hands on both sides. Nasty. Um, just like unreal players every, every week, you know, like yeah. definitely – and that was one of the things that I considered when I was going to school was just like looking at the level. And I was like, dude, this is a, I mean, this is a, you know, challenger level match every week yeah. or however often we're playing. So like, this makes no sense to not, not go. Like I don't have to worry about the, the level of competition for sure. Yeah. And I'm getting good coaching and securing education, you know, all that. So. Yeah. No, I mean, again, I wish we had you a little longer and I guess yeah. my last question, cause you talked about it on the road at Wake, playing in that semifinal. How does that environment compare to life on tour, at, like playing these challenger-level matches? Because that's a hostile crowd. I'm curious if you've had crowds like that at any degree in your pro career. No. No. <laughs> and I probably will never have a crowd like that unless I play – unless I, like, switch Draper. nationalities and I or, play, like, yeah. art, and I'm playing Davis Cup – for Argentina against Brazil or something like that. <laughs> sure. You know, I don't think there's anything that's going to topple like some of those college environments. I think, you know, it's because t- pro tennis is just like most of the time, it's just like too proper. Like, it's just not going to, the stuff you hear when you're playing college tennis, you're just not going to hear that at a pro <laughs> event. It's just not going to happen. The crowd might be, you know, cheering extra loud for the other guy, but like, I'm not getting like verbally abused, you know, <laughs> most of the time either. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't giggle, but I'm curious. And I guess this is a big picture thing. Would you prefer it the other way? Like, would you prefer getting heckled but having that engagement or knowing, like, look, you're a professional now. Like, you're trying to focus. You're trying to make a living. Like, I imagine it's probably nice to have that some of that stuff filtered out, which makes more sense for a pro atmosphere. I'd probably keep, like, stuff to say I would change things the way they are. I definitely don't mind, like, the crowd getting more involved for sure. You know, like, it's fun. I think yeah. – you know, most players would – anyone who plays in college tennis, like, really loves it. I think, you know, like, everything I've heard from a good player who plays college tennis, everyone loves it because it's just – that atmosphere is just, like, it's awesome. You know, it's loud and it's always loud because there's six courts going on at one time, like – and it's, so it's awesome. Um, but, yeah, you know, definitely pro tennis. Maybe at the slams, I would say, is the, the closest you can get to, like, a, a college atmosphere, you know, like – Probably some of the Aussies get it in Australia, you know, in, in the Aussie Open. And then maybe as an American on Ash, you can get it. But New York's also so diverse that I feel like a lot of times as an American, you're actually getting less crowd support. Sure. Which is, you know, strange. <laughs> um, so, yeah, college college tennis definitely, you know, top of the top of the food chain for atmosphere. It's the only level in the sport where we have a war chant. I mean, if you watch Ohio State warm up, you're like, I'm sorry, what? Like, what are yeah. you guys doing right now? Uh, yeah. You know, this is a tennis match. Like, it was the most striking contrast. Harvard's playing, like, short court, just a little hitting. They're casual. The other side, you just have one team's ready to go to war. I'm like, yeah, I think that team's going to win. Um, yeah. And so, no, I mean, 
obviously we do a lot of correct uh, here at correct rackets with college tennis, but just interesting to hear your perspective as well. My last question for you goals, but more importantly, I guess schedule for 2024. You're now 144 in the world. I know, obviously, you want to play more tour-level events. We do have Indian Wells, Miami, if you're listening. I know a guy who would be a fantastic wildcard recipient. He certainly has played pretty well of late, but I'm curious what your schedule looks like coming up, what you hope to accomplish this season. Yeah, I'm going to play, uh, you know, I think I'm right now, I'm like nine or ten out of Indian Wells, so hopefully I can I can get in there one way or the other, and and then uh, you know maybe Phoenix if the list drops. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and well, I think Miami the cutoff is sixty nine in Phoenix right now for main draw. Like, come on. Yeah, um, yeah. No, not a not a lot of comments there other than tough cut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, then Miami, but you know, for me, schedule for the year. Obviously, when I can play um, qualities of tour events, I'd like to do that. And when I can, I'll I'll play challengers. You know, I think it's a it's kind of a weird ranking spot to be in because you can't really play, you can't play full, full tour schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely want to keep continuing to play challengers and, and, you know, try and really go deep in, in events and, and move my ranking like that as well as when I can, um, you know, play qualities of, of some tour events and, and try and do some damage like I did last week in Delray and slowly start to feel, more and more comfortable at that level. Um, so definitely a hybrid of, of events um, here in the short term. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, last March you were playing at a 25K, and now the conversation is challengers with a look, obviously, to play ATP qualities whenever possible. And that speaks to, sincerely, the success you have had so well-deserved. And we should have done this sooner. Like, I think we've been doing this podcast five, six years now. At some point, our paths should have crossed. So I'm glad we finally got the chance to get you on the show today. Patrick Gibson, sincerely, congratulations on all of your success. I appreciated getting to see it in person in Cleveland and certainly looking forward to getting to follow it all season long. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me on. And uh, yeah, good time. Good talk. Appreciate yeah. you having me on. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah. Hopefully we'll we'll cross paths again here soon. Yeah, absolutely. Be safe, be healthy, and good luck to you. Thanks. Appreciate it. You too. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with world number 144 and three-time ATP Challenger champion Patrick Kipson, who, by the way, has an ATP quarterfinal on his resume now as well. A massive thank you to him for taking the time to chat, as I alluded to in the intro. We're getting back to our roots with conversations like these. These are the interviews we started this podcast with. It's the sort of interviews we hope to do more of moving forward here in 2024, and I just can't thank Pat enough for taking the time to chat with us. Again, his candidness, his honesty, and again, the fun he was willing to have with us throughout the course of the show as well. We are wishing him success and hopefully we will have him on after his next big result unfolds on tour. Of course, this is one of many podcasts we have available for all of you tennis fans on our various Cracked Rackets podcast, whether it's this show, the Mini Break podcast, or the Great Shot podcast. We try to cover all levels of the sport, keep you up to date as a tennis fan so that you remain the most well-educated best informed fans in the business, of course. A thank you, as always, to the efforts of our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of our content possible. Not just the podcast, but obviously the broadcast we do as well, all of our YouTube content, social media, 
Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Cracked Rackets. A thank you to him for his efforts. A thank you as well to all of you listeners who tune in day in, day out. It's why we continue to give the effort we do to cover every level of the sport. It's because we know your passion for the sport exceeds even ours, and we do our best to try to match that day in, day out. So a shout out to all of you who continue to tune in. That said, for the fantastic Patrick Kipson, our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You've been listening to another edition of the Cracked Interviews Podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll talk to you all soon. Thanks, everyone.